Hi again. Welcome back to Set Phasers to Stun. Today, we're here with Professor John Copley, who's going to tell us a little bit about the mysteries of the deep sea and our favorite creature that lives in it, the Meg. What can the deep sea floor and the life that's on it tell us about the potential for life in other harsh environments, for instance, on other planets? Well, one of the big discoveries, I think, of the last just over 50 years, I guess, in the, in the deep sea uh, has been finding places in the deep sea where food isn't scarce. OK, so I mentioned earlier about, yeah, you know, it all it's a food chain that starts with basically algae living through photosynthesis in sunlit surface waters. And then, you know, their remains sink. And either you make a meal of that or you eat things that make a meal of that. But the deeper you go, the less food there is available. Well, just over 50 years ago, scientists came across hot springs on the ocean floor with lots and lots of life around them. And this was a total surprise because as food gets more scarce, life becomes more sparse. You know, there's generally less life the deeper you go. But here there was, you know, it was it was as lush as a, as a shallow water coral reef. You know, so much life. And we're talking, you know, uh, 2000 meters, more than one and a half miles deep. Um, there simply shouldn't be enough food for that for so much life at that depth. And it turns out that what was happening at these hot springs on the ocean floor called hydrothermal vents is there are bacteria that can make a living using minerals dissolved in this hot spring water that's gushing out of the ocean floor and it's a very it's a different process it's called chemosynthesis instead of photosynthesis and that was a really big discovery not just for understanding life in the deep ocean and the fact that sometimes it can be really rich um, but it was a really big discovery because it expanded our understanding of how it's possible to support life it doesn't have to be a food chain that starts with sunlight and photosynthesis. We can have food chains driven by chemical energy from dissolved minerals. Um, you know, so and we now know there are lots of other ways of sustaining life, you know, using electrical energy from reactions that take place between seawater and rocks and, and things like that. So it really expanded our perspective of, of what's possible. And that is really exciting when we think about life elsewhere in the solar system, because it means you don't have to be so close to a star like our sun, that there's enough bright sunlight for you to get photosynthetic life. You could have life further out in the solar system where the sun is very dim and it wouldn't be much good for photosynthesis. But if you have the right chemistry, uh, then maybe you can get these chemically powered forms of life. Um, so it showed us what's possible. Um, and that then has got people excited about searching those kinds of places. So one of the places that people are very excited about trying to explore in the future is one of Jupiter's moons called Europa. And what's interesting about Europa is it's we know its surface is covered in ice, but we're pretty sure that that is an icy crust and underneath it, there's actually a liquid ocean. Um, and it's going to be a very, and, and then there's a rocky core at the bottom of that ocean. And it's a very, very, vol it's going to be a very volcanically active moon. There's going to be a lot of volcanic activity. It's the nearest moon to it is another one called Io. It doesn't have an icy crust or an ocean, but it's the most volcanically active body in the solar system. It's got huge volcanoes erupting all the time because Jupiter's gravity is basically pulling it apart, you know, pulling it and, and so on all the time. And it's churning its interior. The same is probably happening on Europa. There's a lot of volcanic activity at the bottom of that liquid ocean on Europa. Um, and where you've got, 
liquid water and you've got volcanic activity, you've got all the ingredients for hydrothermal vents, these undersea hot springs, maybe that kind of chemistry which can sustain life here on Earth. So that's why people are interested in exploring some of these uh, exciting places further out in the solar system than, you know, 50 years ago, we would have thought, no, there's no point looking for life there. You're too far from the sun. Now we know you don't have to be perhaps that close to the sun. Obviously, the deep sea is pretty much science fiction by itself because it's so different to anything we imagine in our everyday lives. Have you seen the film The Meg? I have. Yes, I have indeed. Yep. What's your expert opinion on the possibility of giant megafauna like the Megalodon surviving out in the ocean? There are two things with the Meg. I mean, it's a lot of fun and I, I enjoyed it as a movie. OK, now, if we're going to get kind of science pedantic about the Meg itself, there's a couple of things there. First of all, we are certain that Megalodon is not still alive swimming around out there in the oceans. OK, and people say, oh, well, hang on, you haven't explored all the ocean. How can you say that for sure? Well, because we know because it's a really big top predator, it would have to have a huge range in order to get all the food it needs to sustain itself. We would have seen it. OK, <laughs> so, you know, we can be confident it's not out there. We understand why it went extinct. We understand when it went extinct. OK, so, you know, the Meg itself, no. And in the movie, of course, it's surviving at the bottom of a deep ocean trench. And that's why no one's seen it. And there is plenty of food down there. And, you know, they, they have some nice ways around those kinds of science issues, um, shall we say. But um, actually, sharks can't survive that deep. The deepest known shark type fish is at a just short of 4,000 meters deep. OK, um, and that's actually because of the problems with pressure well, molecules within cells and the way that sharks overcome that with this little chaperone molecule. They build up more and more of it. They have more of it at the surface because of their physiology. They run into side effects and it limits the depths at which sharks can survive. So there are no sharks for biochemical reasons deeper than 4000 meters. OK, so. All right. Not not the Meg itself and those details of the movie. But what is nice, I think, is, yeah, the idea that there are other big animals out there that we haven't seen yet. Yes, that is indeed the case. And we know that's the case because if we'd seen all the big animals in the ocean already, then no matter how hard we carry on looking, we won't find any new ones. Once we've seen them all, once we've collected them all, no matter how hard we look, we're not going to find any, any new ones. So what we can do is we can look at the rate at which we've been finding new species of large animals in the ocean over time. And we can kind of plot that. And, you know, that discovery curve hasn't flattened off yet. OK, it's nearly flattened off, but not quite. And then you can do some maths and you can fit a curve to it and you can predict where it's going to flatten off. And that'll tell you that, yeah, there's probably at least 10 species of big animal. I mean, more than two meters, you know, body size out there in the ocean that we haven't encountered yet. Looking at the rate at which we've been encountering them over time and we can see that that hasn't flattened off yet. So, um, yeah, the, that idea is, is nice. I think there are still some big surprises um, to come. Now, in some cases, we're finding new big species when we 
have what we think is one species and we look at its genetics and we find actually it's two different species when we look at its genetics and we didn't know that before but we had actually seen it but very occasionally we do come across a big animal that no one has seen before and, and an example would be the megamouth shark which is a, a filter feeder so it's not a voracious predator like the megalodon um, it's a filter feeder it lives in the middle of the ocean you know maybe thousand to 1500 meters deep um, occasionally comes shallower and you know and this is pretty big i mean it's not quite as big as a as a whale shark or a basking shark but it's it's a big shark and that was discovered in 1976 which is not that long ago i mean we're talking what less than 50 years ago and that's a big animal that no one would have predicted was out there so we are still going to find some big surprises and, and that is exciting what's the biggest deep sea creature that's been found in comparison to the megalodon Size is interesting in the deep sea. A lot of deep sea animals, probably most deep sea animals, are actually smaller than the same type of animal in shallow water. So, you know, deep sea snails, a lot of them are smaller than snails that live on, you know, shallow coral reefs or, or whatever it might be. But there are some exceptions where the animals are much bigger than their shallow water relatives. Shallow water isopods are a few centimetres, an inch or two long. You know, deep sea giant isopods, you know, a foot long, 30 centimetres long. Now, we have got some really big deep sea squid, of course. You know, we've probably heard of the giant squid and that is real. And that's about 13 metres long from, you know, the tip of the tail to the to the tip of the longest tentacle. Um, but that's a really big deep sea predator. Um, and then it also there's another kind of big deep sea squid called the colossal squid which um, is probably about the same length as a giant squid, but it is beefier. It's kind of a bigger bodied squid. Um, so those are a couple of the, of the giants that are out there in the deep. Do you have a favourite bit of science from the Meg? I personally can't decide whether my favourite is the fact that it can't hunt prey that don't have headlights or the fact that this gigantic shark couldn't make it through a metre of cold water. <laughs> um the bit that confuses me a little bit is jason statham when he's diving in the submersible in the in the deep diving vehicle he's having to cope with changes in pressure and that's not how deep diving vehicles work we stay at normal pressure and we don't experience any kind of discomfort like that so that's the one bit that does raise my eyebrows is <laughs> i don't know quite what was going on with that bit. fair enough i suppose it defeats the purpose of the diving vehicle a bit doesn't it yeah, I mean, it introduces a bit of jeopardy and, and so on, which, which is what we want in drama, right? So, you know, that's fine. <laughs> Set Phasers to Stun is hosted by Mick Schubert with music by Sam Watts. You can find Mick at MickSchubert.com and Sam at SamWatts.com. And you can find Set Phasers to Stun on every major podcast platform, as well as at SetPhasersToStun.substack.com.